The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The voice of health, freedom, and liberty. The Robert Scott Bell Show. All right, welcome y'all back to the Robert Scott Bell Show. We call this the Sunday edition because it appears on Sunday. I guess the history of Sunday, interestingly enough, we look at the days of the week. Uh, they all uh, end in day. I don't know why that is. I think that, I think I know why that is. But anyway, what we want to do uh, on our Sunday events is to uh, go a little bit more overtly spiritual. Some would say religious. Some people are offended by religion or religious, but but like spiritual and. I roll any which way on the top subject and topic because it, you know, it's inspiring to me to be inspired by others who are inspired. What does that even mean? Inspiring. Well, we'll find out today because my buddy, my pal, one of the most extraordinary people to come into my life on this journey. Uh, and he's got a story to tell. I don't know. We, we've, we've told parts of it and he's told his story on other uh, podcasts uh, and, and, and shows. Uh, but he's he's added a lot to what we do here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Uh, brought in so many amazing folks, connecting, I would say, diamonds, if you will, diamonds, souls, sparks of God, you know, just being open to the guidance that is there for us all of the time. And and at any given time in our life, in my life, I can say that I haven't been open to that guidance. I've, you know, kind of walked into walls and wondered, who put that wall there? Curse that wall. <laughs> Not realizing that, I was not listening to the guy. just said, hey, there's a wall there. Uh, maybe you take a right turn over here, move around that way. And, um, you know, my role or goal in, in healing, of course, is to recognize in my journey that the healing gifts, the messages, the guidance was always there. But I had a lot of obstacles in my own life, uh, belief systems, um, uh, fears, et cetera, that kind of got in the way. And I had to suffer the way I suffered. My suffering is my suffering to motivate me to find a different way, a different path. And as I prayed to God for many years for healing, it didn't come as a miracle lightning bolt from the sky, but it came as a grounding in spiritual principles or spiritual laws that then guided me to open myself up for the guidance, the gifts, the healing that was always there just waiting for me to be ready. And you've heard the the statement, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, or when the uh, acolyte is ready. The, the master appears many different ways to say that. What is it that happens in our life or in your life that finally gets you to the point where I let go of all the obstacles, all of the things that kind of stand in the way of the guidance from above or from within from divine communication. And I set this up not to put any pressure on my buddy, Kevin Tuttle, because he, he laughs through, through this kind of pressure that I throw at him, but he's really been someone that's been a living example of the grace of God, the ability to heal through tough times, and then the changing of your life to impact others for better, to be a force for love, not power. Isn't that interesting to say it that way? So without further ado, I bring on my pal, Kevin Tuttle, back on the Robert Scott Bell Show, which it should be the Kevin Tuttle Show. <laughs> wow, what an introduction. Thank you, Robert. Awesome to be here. It's totally scripted, by the way. You hear me work on that? I was like, wait, wait, I missed that. Uh, Anyway. I did when I was in the green room. Like you went over that like six times. I remember giving you some pointers. Hey man, don't forget how, to mention this. How badly did I screw that up? 
<laughs> no, it was great. Thank you. Well, Kev, I, I don't know where to begin because you have a lot of stories to share and some are very intense and I know you've shared them in other uh, venues, but was this your idea with Super Don? Did you collude on this? It's like our Sunday show should be more in this direction, which when Don mentioned it to me, I was like, dude, yeah, I resonate with that totally. And we've had some amazing guests with this focal point, open discussion. Uh, and and I, look, I'm just, I'm digging it. And I'm glad you said, hey, man, I could do that too. You know, you have the best producer out there. So I, I can't take any credit for this idea. Um, this was all super done. And, you know, I, I love the idea. Just, I feel it's it's something that can bring us, you know, bring more value to the show, even even more than it already exists. You know, everybody loves the show already. But to have, you know, I think a lot of your fans are spiritually minded and, and want to talk about those types of things. So I think it's great, you know, and Considering that I book your guests, um, yes. this one was new for me. <laughs> How do you book yourself, right? Uh, yeah. And, and you know, the place that we have, I would say co-created in a sense, uh, to welcome people, I guess, to be vulnerable, to be willing to share these stories. And I have been impressed with our family, if you will, our audience, that for the most part, they've been very open and non-judgmental in the sense that, you know, the people's journeys are all different and unique and belief systems are all different and unique. And rather than rejecting it and saying, I will never listen to you again, uh, it's been a, a, you know, and that's been a concern that I've had growing up, you know, being you know Jewish in a very highly Southern, you know, Baptist uh, kind of Christian uh, fundamentalist view where there's a, not a lot of acceptance and, and, and how would we say? Uh, forgiveness may be one word, but it's not the right word. It's just sort of like uh, it's my way or the highway scenario versus the human experience, you know, having the spiritual experiences on this planet as human beings and recognizing a diversity of ways to connect to the divine as opposed to, you know, beating people up over the head if they're not doing it the way I want them or you want them or they want you to do it. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier. You know, the the student has to be ready for for that for the master to appear. And I know that that's something I went through uh, with my life until about three years ago when I gave my life to God um, after after a very rough period. Um, you know, I would say I'd hit rock bottom uh, in, in running away from myself, in running away from God. And I was ready. Um, I was so tired of, of secrets, of, um, of pain inside, you know, of that, of that feeling of, you know, I'm dead inside. I can't remember how many times I've said that to my friends and I completely meant it. You know, I said it in a joking fashion, but you know, I'd be like, well, I'm, I'm dead inside. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, it really wasn't a joke. I really did feel like my soul had been taken from me that I was dead inside. And no matter what I did, ultimately it wouldn't matter because we really have no purpose in this world and you know all that changed um about three years ago but you know i guess in order to to tell the story fully i kind of got to go back to the beginning yes um, you do but i, I want to ask you this question as we go there did you feel like you came in with this dead inside perspective or it happened over childhood you know things or events occurred that caused you to ha have that uh, belief system, you know, in, in, integrated into your being at that point through your young adult and adult years? 
I think it formed through trauma in my childhood. I don't think it was actually a conscious thought that I had. Like, this is how I want to believe that we have no purpose, that that you're dead inside, um, you know, that you have no soul, that type of thing. I, I think it it happens due to what happens to you in your life. Um, and, you know, for me, it was a, a rough childhood. Um, you know, I had very loving parents and I don't want to put any of this on my parents because they ultimately didn't know um, mm. that my sister, who's seven years older than me, uh, we were living in the bush of Alaska at the time. You know, my dad was in the Air Force to about a year prior to that. Um, and when he got out of the Air Force, we moved out to the bush because, you know, rent was really cheap when you had no running water and no electricity. Um, and we were living on food stamps and, and welfare. And um, it, was, it was a really rough time for my parents. Uh, you know, they were searching for something bigger, too, in, in the spiritual realm. They were looking for God. And, you know, through their search, you know, it's so ironic that as they're searching for this, this truth um, and spirituality and to be cleansed and all this, I was being molested in that house, in that cabin by my older sister. And um, it was, you know, every, every paycheck that my parents would get, you know, they had to run into town, into Fairbanks. Uh, to to pick up the money, to pick up the food stamps. And every time they ran into town, I would beg to go with them. You know, we had a pickup truck, so only one other kid could go in. And I have an older brother and my sister. And, you know, when I wasn't chosen, it was usually my brother because he was eight years older and he had things to do in Fairbanks. You know, I was I was six years old, um, six and seven. And, mm. and uh, so I knew what would happen to me when my parents left. And uh, it was obviously very traumatic. Um, and those were memories that that haunted me for you know my entire life. Um, I kind of buried them after I was like nine years old. It's like I didn't think about that at all until um, I was about 18, 19, 20 years old in in college and then all these memories started coming back. And that trauma was just buried. And, and at that time, when, when the memories came back, I didn't want to tell my parents. Um, obviously, there was a rift between my sister and I, and my parents didn't understand it. Um, but I knew that if I told my parents that they would cut my sister out of their lives, right? Because that's nobody can deal with that. And I, I didn't want that on me. So I always kept silent. And and burying everything for all those years, it's it does something to you. Um, the trauma changes your brain. You know, there's a book, I have it here, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. This is the, the book that really helped me start to heal three years ago, um, to know that some of my actions in my life, while I take full responsibility for all my actions, my brain had actually changed through that trauma and the things that I was doing to myself were not conscious, but a fact of a fact of the matter that my, my brain had changed. I'm sabotaging myself to protect myself in a, in a weird way. Hmm. Well, the, the, the trauma you're describing as a young person, as a child, um, we talk about the, the inability, if you will, to process that kind of information in a way that, uh, you would say you'd adjust and, and mature as an adult and go, well, that's horribly wrong. 
and I would never do that to anybody else. The question I have as well in your, you know, awakening to this is we see the pattern of abuse appear in families and continue the abuse, the, the one that's abused becomes the abuser. How did you, you know, manifest again, probably anger, fear, you know, all these emotions that you had no place to, you know, the maturity to figure out what's going on here. Uh, to not do, but then again, you you did some things, of course, that you say, I, I regret doing, it's not who I am today, but but how did it how did it manifest in your life, the things that you then said, man, I don't want to do that at the awakening point, which we'll get to. I knew, you know, once these memories started coming back um, in my early adulthood, that, that that was something I would never do to anybody. I would, you know, in thinking about having children, um, that's... I would have rather died than to do that to anybody else. And I didn't know that, you know, statistically you're you're high much more likely to you know to harm somebody else in a similar fashion when that happens to you. Um I took it as I would I, I just can't do that. I know how I feel inside. I would never mm -hmm. want to do that to somebody else. So I knew that when I had kids that that would never ever be passed down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no matter, no matter the sinful life I was living, that never happened. I mm -hmm. never went down that road. I never abused anybody in that fashion. Um, I, you know, I was, I feel like I was still a good person, quote unquote. Uh, but, but that type of evil that, mm -hmm. that never even occurred to me, um, you know, that I knew what that felt like inside to be robbed. And I told many people that, you know, my soul was taken from me by my sister. Mm. And I didn't get my soul back until three years ago when when I gave my life to God and I was restored. Um, the, the amount of healing that I've gone through has been incredibly difficult, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but okay. um, it, it's made me a new person. Uh, so okay. I, by the grace of God is all I can say that mm. he, he put that fire in me to to make sure that I never harmed anybody the way that I was harmed. You know, there's a, that repeated pattern. There's a point where you say, stop, enough. I'm not going to continue this, right? And that happens. Like I said, some people that have been through these things and, and worse even uh, put a halt to it and they become transformed and then they help to transform others for the better. And then there are others that fall right into that pattern, get so angry, they want to dish out, if you will, what happened to them, to others, unconsciously to some degree. And I think about the time before we got to this lifetime. And again, there are a lot of perspectives on what that is, what that means, that there may have been a pattern that, you know, that existed before we got here, that we have the operating ability, capacity and choice to make because agency is to me, one of the greatest gifts beyond life itself that God gave me that, that ability to make choices. And, and I've made choices in my life. That I go, man, I don't ever want to do that again. And my journey, of course, is different in terms of, you know, what, you what you've described as abuse is, is horrific. Uh, but the abuse I experienced was at the hands of medical doctors. And I realized, because I believe they meant well, for instance, they come across that way. And I don't even know that they meant to do me harm because they had tra been trained in a way they were un unconscious of what at that point was not addressing any of my ailments and illnesses. And and I've told the story about my uncle Bob, who was a medical doctor, who warned me not to become one of 
them. <laughs> and I thought this was the weirdest thing. A doctor, your uncle says not to be a doctor. And I didn't know that until I was, you know, late teens, 19 or so, 18, 19. And then I realized that all that I had been through in medicine to treat the various ailments and illnesses that I had uh, made me not better, but worse. And that if I were to repeat that pattern on anybody else by becoming a doctor, mm -hmm. I would be absolutely miserable. Now, I know it's not the same con context of your experience, but just in a step out of it and look down and say, there are choices that we make at any one time. Had it been for any lesser reason, if I wanted to be a doctor, just be say I'm a doctor, uh, then I would have gone, who cares? But if it mattered to me how I treated others, I couldn't do it. And I, and I imagine, again, that came to you very clearly that even as you hadn't yet received the love of God by acceptance, your acceptance, because the love's always there. It's whether we accept it or not. That on that journey, you still had something within you that knew right from wrong, despite the abuse that occurred early in your childhood. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I, my parents did a, a very good job of raising me, I feel. You know, they, they instilled right and wrong within me. Um, you know, I ended up ignoring a lot of that as I went into my early adulthood. But some of the other things that occurred to me during my childhood then, you know, with after this abuse occurred or during the abuse itself, um, you know, I turned to food. So I became the fat kid in school. Um, I had really bad teeth. My hair was wrong. We were poor. So we had, I always had, you know, hand-me-downs or the worst clothes. Um, so my child, my grade school was not easy for me. I mean, I was made fun of every single day. Um, it was some. I would normally come home. I remember fourth grade was especially bad. You know, I'm just starting to to come into my own a little bit. You know, I'm 10, 9, 10 years old. Um, and these kids were just relentless um, with the teasing. And I would come home every day crying. And especially this one girl who was just so evil to me. Like She couldn't wait till I got to school so she could start making fun of me. And she sat next to me, um, just happened to sit next to me all the time. You know, that's where the teacher had put her. And she loved being there because she would just give me jabs all day long, like making mm -hmm. fun of my clothes, making fun of my teeth, whatever it was. And I remember one day, um, this girl was not at school. When I walked in, I'm like, oh, a day off, right? Like, I'm excited that I'm not going to be um, tor tormented by her. And our teacher says, students, I have something to tell you. Um, this girl and her family were going home last night and they hit some black ice and they all died in a car accident. Mm. And I remember my classmates started crying and, you know, the teacher was, of course, somber and tears. And I looked around and I'm like smiling. I'm smiling because she's not there anymore to torment me. Wow. And I was so excited. And I ran home after school and I burst through the door. I said, mama, she's dead, she's dead. And my mom's like, who, who are you talking about? And I tell her, you know, the girl that had been making fun of me. And, you know, my mom didn't really know what to say. She was like, well, you won't have to deal with that anymore. But of course she felt bad, like nobody wants a death to happen. Mm. And the reason I tell you the story is because I could not for the longest time remember this girl's name. You would think that somebody who had tormented me so long and so uh, voraciously would would I would retain retain her name, but I couldn't. And I remember it was a few years ago. I was out for a run in the winter time, 
And I was just thinking back on this type of stuff. And uh, I get to a, a streetlight by a church. And for whatever reason, I stopped running right there and it flooded back to me. And her name was Heather. And that was the first time in 30 some years that I could remember her name. Mm -hmm. And I just stood there and I started crying. And I said, I forgive you. Um, I forgive you for what you did. And I needed to ask her for forgiveness too. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being happy about your death. You didn't deserve that. And it's it's those type of moments where, where healing can occur when you can confront what you've done wrong. Um, so I look forward to seeing her one day. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I might imagine that whatever pain that she was carrying, you know, who knows if she was abused as well, that, yeah. that she took it out on you uh, for whatever energetic interchange reason. And, and I said, this is the area of, of forgiveness and compassion. And, uh, you know, we hear what forgiveness isn't so much for her sake, but for yours to uh, allow yourself to move beyond and heal and then be transformed in the spirit of love, you know, and that divine relationship, because God is so forgiving. Uh, you know, if we can even have a little bit of that in our lives, uh, it's extraordinary what can happen. And and it also provides perhaps an opportunity for that person that has done wrong to to break free as well. Now, it's not a guarantee that if we forgive somebody that they're suddenly going to transform in the way you've described in your own life or in, in my own experience. But the the holding on to that is certainly limiting not only to you, but them. And, and then what happens is not let's say your responsibility for that, for them, right? Cause we can often say, I've got to now save that person and I will save them if it kills them <laughs> or me. Right. And it's like dishonoring again of that agency, that freedom that God gave us. So it's a fascinating journey uh, to recognize the brutality of life on this planet and how long these things, these abusive relationships, if I can even call them relationships have gone on over and over and over again. And yet what, ha what has it led to for you? You know, what has the transformation meant to you and and how indeed, if you can describe, was there a solitary single moment? I described the lightning bolt that didn't come to me in a sense of a healing, yet a study and a research in the grounding on what I call spiritual principles and spiritual laws that began to strengthen me and uh, strengthen a connection and a communication that would guide me in, in ways that I kind of had fleeting evidence of more in a consistent if I can say it, love it to be 24 seven, but as much as possible to do better, to stay in that consciousness of listening to the voice of God, so to speak. Uh, and, and so for you in that awakening in that God moment or moments, was it a lightning bolt that started it? And then it led to a, a different way to practice the presence from that moment forward. Yeah, it was, it was a, a moment where there was infidelity in my life. Um, you know, I was always searching for that next person to to take my pain. Um, and I blamed my wife for not being able to take my pain away. Mm -hmm. That meant that she didn't care about me, that, you know, I always felt that I wasn't cared for or cared about. Um, and and those were those feelings were incorrect. It's just through the trauma that that's how I protected myself. And so maybe that next person could help me feel, can help me not feel dead inside. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was always the case for the first, you know, when it, when it's a new relationship. Um, but then you quickly tire and you move on to the next person, and it's it's an endless pit of of disgusting um, of a disgusting life. Like I, but the thing that that really um, has transformed itself is the forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was I was walking along after um, after this whole infidelity thing. I, I had to, I knew I had to confess everything and I was walking along and there was traffic there you know in a residential neighborhood it's only 25 miles an hour and some cars pass and the thoughts had come like can I jump in front of this car and have it actually kill me Mm. instead of just harm me because I just want to end it and you know I just felt this overwhelming um, calling to confront to take self-responsibility and to stop this life, um, to come back to me is, you know, I felt God talking to me like, Kevin, it's enough. Like he allowed me to wander off, you know, for 40 years and um, he had had enough. And he put that on my heart to say, okay, it's, I have to be done with this life. I have to uh, take responsibility for what I've done. I have to ask for forgiveness. And, and the thing that comes from asking for forgiveness and, and doing the work necessary um, to heal is that you are able to forgive. And one, one story that, that really um, demonstrates this is my sister's name was Nicole. And every time I'd heard that name, it would, it would trigger me. Um, I, I couldn't stand that name. Um, and I was driving home one day after I just met somebody um, through a through a colleague, and this lady's name was Nicole. You know, when they introduced her, and it didn't even affect me. And uh, as I was driving home, I was thinking about that. I'm like, her name was Nicole, and I felt nothing. And it was at that point that I'm like, you know what? I forgive her. Mm. Um, I was finally able to forgive her, and I said it out loud. I forgive you. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I want anything to do with her. I'm not trying to reconcile our relationship or start a new relationship or anything. You know, I'm, I'm okay if I never see her again, mm. but I've forgiven her. And that takes everything that was on my shoulder, all those burdens for so long. Um, I felt like I put it all on her now. She carries it and it's up to her to work with, through those things in her life. I'm free of it. Mm. Um, I'm also free of you know, of the infidelity, I'm, I'm free of the sin in my own life when, when I accepted the Lord in, into my life. And, you know, the work um, that my wife and I have done, you know, she forgave me. I, and then the biggest, I don't, I don't necessarily want to say the biggest thing, but one of the biggest things is that I was able to forgive myself. And that was always an incredibly hard thing for yeah. me, um, is to, to recognize that, I need to be able to move on by by loving myself and forgiving myself, um, like God forgive God forgave me. So why can't I forgive myself? Um, yeah. So that was the work that I, that I've had to accomplish over the last few years. You can carry that experience around like an anchor, and and then walk in a victim state of consciousness to, to punish yourself for something that God has forgiven yeah. you for, right? And and then to what degree is it that you you know martyr yourself? in a way that can cannot allow a repair of relationships, whether it be you know, a spouse or other things, 
uh, you know, that becomes a, I'm going to embrace the victim as opposed to embracing the, well, it, it, we call it the sinner, right? I know some people don't like that term, but whatever, just, you know, roll with it. The, the, the choices we make that we would say, I, I regret that, or maybe I don't regret it, but it was something that I, I realized I was reaching for an external, um, uh, what would I say, something to f- fulfill me that was really an inner thing, uh, a relationship with God thing. And I think a lot of these habits, whether they be, uh, you know, illicit habits in terms of, of drugs or whether it be reaching out for these superficial relationships, physical relationships to kind of meet the need, which is really a deep desire for a relationship with the divine. Uh, how many people have come to that conclusion, you know, searching externally for that, which is in, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, an internal relationship that fulfills all of those needs more and then allows for that full loving relationship in this lifetime with someone, you know, a soul in another body that you dedicate your life to be together through thick and thin, through, you know, all the hardships as well. Yeah, you know, and looking back on on what transpired throughout my life, you know, going from Alaska to moving to Romania when I was 14 and lived there till I was 17, um, to be prepared, it's like God played a role the entire time, even though I denied his existence, even though I was angry at him, um, you know, because my mindset was, if God is real, then he wouldn't allow anything bad to happen. And, you know, especially to children, how could he let that happen to children? And I would, you know, I would shake my fist at God and say, You're, you don't exist, which is insane that I'm yelling at somebody who doesn't exist, that he doesn't exist, <laughs> um, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just absurd. And, and all this time, the love that God had, he, he continued to play that role in my life. He kept, you know, leading me down paths that ultimately put me where I am today. Um, you know, if I look back at before my daughter was born in 2008, um, I was injured at a gym. I was doing some pull-ups and I snapped my neck, you know, something got pulled in there. So I stopped at a chiropractor's office, never been to a chiropractor before, but he was on my way home. So I just pulled in this driveway (laughs) or in this parking lot and, and said, please, can you help me? And my wife was pregnant at the time, you know, we were living in Florida and he he basically asked, you know, what else is going on in your life? I'm happy to help you. But he wanted to find out more about me. You know, sure. and, um, so he led me down this path of you need to look into vaccination before you vaccinate your your child, you know, if that's what you choose to do. And, you know, he he opened me up to um, the polio hoax. You know, there was he maybe come watch a in exchange for me, for him helping me that day, mm. he said I had to come back the next day to watch a documentary that they were screening at the office. And I said, fine, whatever you want me to do. And uh, so it was about the polio hoax that that the vaccine did not cure polio and how it was renamed. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't remember what film that was, you know, it was a long time ago, but it really opened my eyes. And then he told me to read Evidence of Harm by David Kirby who sadly um, actually passed away this week. Recently, yes. Um, yeah. Um, but that book, that woke me up. I mean, that shook me because I got about a quarter of the way through that thing. And there's a story about Simpsonwood where all these doctors at CDC found a link between autism and vaccines. And rather than tell the American public what's going on, they gathered in Simpsonwood, Georgia to figure out how to cover this up. 
And it blew my mind. Like this, my distrust for the medical field overall, which I've had my entire life, I'm like, this validates it. And, you know, I went home and I told my wife, Bonnie, I said, hey, we're not vaccinating, by the way. And she's like, what? You know, so this conversation started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it went from not vaccinating to my next appointment at the chiropractor was, hey, have you guys ever thought of a home birth? And I'm like, no, it's not 1850. You know, like, yeah. why would I do that? And uh, we started looking into that more. Um, it was a fantastic midwife in the area in Florida. And he put us together and, you know, my wife was open to it. She wanted a, a natural birth anyway. And her doctor, uh, whom she fired, uh, you know, after she asked him how he felt about a birth plan, he says, look, I don't I don't really go by birth plans. You know, so much happens in the delivery room. You just have to leave it up to me. Mm. And Bonnie didn't like that answer, you know, and so she fired him over the phone, you know, with the secretary. And 20 minutes later, he calls back because doctors don't like being fired. Yeah. And so he asks her, you know, so what are you going to do? I hear you're not you don't need my services. Where else are you going to go? And she goes, well, actually, we're getting a midwife and we're going to have a home birth. And he snickers on that. I, I still remember this. He laughs and he says, you know, we call those dirty babies. Wow. And she's like, I, I completely make the right decision. You know, not going with you. That's the kind of arrogance that I was used to from doctors to call, you know, a perfectly healthy, beautiful baby, a such vile terms, right? Um, dirty babies or, you know, in the medical freedom world, we, we've we heard the other side call our, you know, non-vaccinated kids crotch goblins, mm. you know, another another vile term. That, yeah. Somehow we've gone so far off the, the beaten path that we think kids who don't have shots are just filthy creatures and it's offensive. Um, so when I look back at how all of these things transpired in my life, to be doing what I am now, which is giving a voice to those who are silenced, you know, the people who um, are vaccine injured or or otherwise, um, who speak out, you know, who, who are counter narrative, basically, mm-hmm. um, in Spirit PR, which is my company, those are the voices that that I try to elevate. And I love being behind the scenes. So, so actually being on on a show for me right now is, is a little bit different than I'm used to. I like staying mm-hmm. behind the scenes, but I'm saying all this because God has done so many amazing things in my life, even when I refuse to acknowledge that he exists. Yeah. And it's, it's so very humbling. And, you know, I'm, I'm just eternally grateful for that. Well, and there's a seemingly eternal patience on behalf of the creator that, to, you know, mm-hmm. I'm here for you. I'm waiting for you to recognize that I'm here. I never left you not going to abandon you. And, you know, there are people in our life that we may have those experiences with, and I'm not saying we are uh, pretending to be God in those circumstances, but to be God-like or those that follow in a Christian view, Christ-like in, in being supportive and loving of people that are rejecting them. And I don't say this in, in terms of subjecting yourself to abuse, but just to be there for them when they're ready and to let them know that you're not going to abandon them. Uh, it's their choice what they do decide to do in that regard, but you'll love them no matter what. And it's a, a extraordinarily difficult thing when you've been on the receiving end of <clears throat> such abuse to have that level of of God or godly consciousness, a Christ-like forgiveness, if you will, uh, to again not so much 
maybe the intention is there or not to benefit that person who is the abuser, but again, to allow us to allow you to go beyond, move beyond it and, and strengthen a relationship that was, uh, I, I guess there at the beginning. And then, you know, if we're sent away to learn, to choose, as opposed to just having it happen, like you fall into it and it's like, Oh, look at this. This is a nice gift. And you never appreciate it. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's like, we must leave to learn what's really important. What do you appreciate? And in the absence of it, you may find out, Oh, I really did like that. I didn't really really understand how deeply important that was to me until I left it. Yeah. This makes me think of freedom, you know, basically mm -hmm. the reason I love freedom so much is, or love forgiveness so much is that it foments freedom, right? Mm -hmm. it, it encourages that, that you can't be free unless you're, you put everything, you get everything off your own shoulders. And, and that only comes through freedom and, and, or through forgiveness, excuse me. Um, and I think that's the freedom that we have in the medical freedom realm too, or the freedom that we fight for all the time also is, is along those lines. Like we just want to be free. You know, I don't want you to tell me what to do with my body. I don't want you to tell me how to raise my kids. I don't want you to tell me that my kids are the reason that diseases exist. You know, that's how I got into this anti-vax, however you want to phrase it. Mm -hmm. And I'm a proud anti-vaxxer. So call me that all you want, whatever. <laughs> I will own that. So yeah, I'm against all sorts of things that harm children. You know, I don't like when kids drown in pools. So does that make me an anti-pooler? Maybe, <laughs> I don't know. But, um, you know, I got into this uh, in about, I remember seeing a, a shift in the media um, messaging out there with a flu shot, you know, in about 2016, 2017, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was, it was fall of that year. And the messaging used to be, you know, go get your flu vaccine to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. But then it changed to, if you don't get your flu vaccine, you're putting everyone else at risk. And, and then I had, you know, I saw my friends on Facebook and stuff start commenting, Hey, have you guys gotten your flu shot? And and so I just posted, you know, here comes the flu shot propaganda. And that first post, just like I got annihilated by my friends. Um, mm. And these were actual people I knew in real life, you know, <laughs> they weren't just images on a screen. Right. And they were they were just coming after me with all sorts of questions. And, um, you know, is it just the flu shot that you're against? You know, have your kids been vaccinated against polio or? Are they, you know, they're going to spread polio. They're going to, you know, if you don't get the shot for sure, you're going to get that disease is, is the mindset. And I'm like, I couldn't answer some of the questions because after reading evidence of harm, I just kind of left it alone. We made our decision. We're not vaccinating and that's it. And nobody cared for the longest time. My daughter's not vaccinated. My son's not vaccinated. He was born a year and a half after my daughter mm -hmm. and they were very healthy kids. And, mm -hmm. and for me to, to start hearing these messages that my kids are the problem in school, um, that ignited a fire in me. And, you know, because I think it had to do with the trauma that I went through myself, um, that I was going to do everything I could to protect my kids. And you come after my kids, you start calling them names or whatever, mm -hmm. we're gonna have problems. <laughs> and so my friends attacked me in that and you know, I couldn't answer the question. So I, I said, okay, I don't, I don't know how to answer your questions, but I'm going to look, I'm going to look into this now. And I did, I went full, you know, full force into vaccine research, um, trying to find everything I could. And over the next, you know, three, four years, 
um, I found a lot of information and I would constantly post it on Facebook and it drove all my friends, real life friends away. Um, but what I found was that there were a lot of people who felt like I did mm. and actually people who knew a lot more about this subject than I did. Um, and I started connecting with those people and it, it just turned into this, into this medical freedom movement that I didn't know existed, um, that I was now fully part of. And, you know, then the weird thing, anybody who is in this movement will, will understand, you start getting called names like, you know, controlled opposition. Um, you know, I was an Air Force officer for six years. I was a public affairs officer. And so these people who call you these names, they'll do research on you and find some things that are true. Um, you know, I lived in Florida, for example, I was stationed at Patrick Air Force Base. Uh, my house was about 1,500 square feet that I owned. So some of the things that come out on social media was I worked for the government. You know, I was a CIA operative, though, and I also own a mansion in Florida. Mm. So <laughs> um, they take a little bit of truth and completely uh, exaggerate on the rest and just make up stuff. And it was really sad and confusing. And I'm like, this, why? it's just not necessary to make stuff up about people. And, you know, I was attacked a lot. Um, and some of that was because people didn't understand my sense of humor. You know, I, I'm very witty, um, even I'm probably not showing it today, but uh, you know, I have good comebacks, that sort of thing. Hey, and you have made me laugh out loud so many times in our interactions, just <laughs> little quips, even not verbally, but just in our messages back and forth that I just have to show my wife, you know, I'm like, look at this. And, you know, it's fascinating to me because you have been, again, through the abuse you, you've described, you know, only, you know, a, a fraction of what you described, but it would be very understandable to be very sensitive to ribbing and teasing that, that you would have the opposite of like, I can't handle that. And yet for some reason, uh, it's something that is a delightful part of your personality to me, you know, that, that we can have that interaction. And I had, you know, when we first met and connected, I, didn't know about that whole history and sure. you just brought this, this humor, this biting wit, if you will. And not everybody appreciates that. I get that, but I certainly, uh, drawn into the, the fun of it yet. I don't know. How is it you were able to be there considering what you had been through unless a traumatic or a dramatic healing, a, a profound healing had happened to your heart to be able to, you know, not just say I've recovered from this abuse, but actually living that, uh, proclamation, so to speak. Again, it's it's the grace of God that I was able to. Well, I think also it's um, through trauma you have to react in a certain way. You're either going to be angry, mm -hmm. or you're going to protect yourself in other means. So I used I learned humor early, apparently. Um, so I used humor to protect myself. Yeah. Because um, then you can always also say that, hey, I was just kidding. You can say some things to people that are inappropriate or whatever. Well, I was just kidding. And, and they know your personality that, yeah, you probably are just kidding, but, but ultimately it's a way of protecting yourself. And I feel like I've changed a lot. You know, I don't say the things that I used to say, mm. um, you know, if it's call it crassness, um, which I admit I was crass at times, but I, I, was, I also usually did that because I wanted to prove a point. You know, one of the things I did um, when I was on social media, you know, I became, in our realm, what we call Facebook famous, right? Like mm -hmm. all of a sudden I maxed out my friends, you know, 5,000 followers by 
by speaking out against vaccines, um, I came up with a character because um, I got strikes um, for posting the truth about vaccines from Facebook. So I recognized that Facebook couldn't understand sarcasm. So I developed a character called Dr. Kosher, um, who who was a very CDC loving, pharma loving, vaccine loving doctor who was completely rude and insensitive because I was trying to make it realistic. I was trying to make it like a real doctor. <laughs> and, and that's what I knew of them was they really don't care about you. They just listen to whatever the CDC says. And then, you know, your appointments will always include a vaccine of some sort because, you know, they get paid for all of this. So I developed Dr. Kosher. I just basically said the opposite of what I mean in my heart. Mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Kosher took off because it was funny to the people in our realm. And I wore a, lo a white lab coat because my other theory was if I wear a white lab coat, people will believe anything I say. Mm -hmm. And and it proved true. You know, I could say the most ridiculous things. And they're like, well, as Dr. Kosher said, it was true. So um, I found it hilarious. And then, you know, I find out about J.P. Sears a little while later, and he was doing the exact same thing, but he's way funnier and way more accomplished. And I don't want to compare myself to that, but yeah. he does the same thing with sarcasm because the the algorithms can't, can't detect that yet. Um, I'm sure AI will put an end to that soon. Uh, but, you know, Dr. Kosher was, was very crass. And I had a friend reach out because there was nobody yet on in the medical freedom realm on TikTok at that time. TikTok was brand new. Mm -hmm. He said, Kevin, you need to get a page. You're the only one in this in this movement that can do it. Um, start making fun of these doctors who are doing their dances to entice children to come in and get their vaccines and, and that sort of thing. So I did ridiculous types of things like that on TikTok to show the absurdity of what is actually happening. And, and some people just didn't get it. They thought that that's what I was really trying to do. Mm -hmm. I even had my daughter come on on, on some of these little uh, clips. You know, I remember one of the things in the news was that the doctors, uh, I think you had to be 12 years old and older um, mm -hmm. and your parents can't come in the room with you, which seemed like a, a really gross thing. Like yeah. the doctor's going to say a parent can't come into the room with a 12 year old daughter. You know, yeah. like why does the doctor need to be alone with this girl? Um, so that was the one of the videos that really um, upset people, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but basically I had I played, you know, Dr. Kosher with a, a glass of beer in this room where my daughter uh, had just had her exam. And I said, now you're not going to tell anybody about what we did in here. Right. And, you know, that was the I was trying to ruffle feathers and, you know, people take things wrong like that all the time. Then they call me a pervert. And I'm like, no, it's not me. It's these doctors that are perverts. It's these yeah. administrators. It's all of this. Um, so I feel like, you know, I was probably a little misunderstood and I don't but know. It, it was frustrating. It, 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 it called controlled opposition all the time. Yeah. That, that's what really made me mad. I, I've done nothing well, in this movement to, to deserve that title. I've, I've given my life to, you know, protecting people from this harm, yeah. to trying to tell them the truth, to warn people. And yeah, it's just un, unnecessary. Well, and I've experienced those claims, even about you, right? Over mm -hmm. the time that we developed a friendship and, and you know, what you've done. Uh, for the show and it's been extraordinary and uh, yet you know doubts are, are are something that can be you know planted everywhere and anywhere by a lot of people even people that you you think you know no no thanks 
And I would have to check him with my heart, you know, and go deep within my relationship to the divine and ask those questions and feel it out and resonate with the truth that may be different than what other people perceive. And so that's been part of my journey as well, to be able to confirm or deny certain realities based on other people's experiences or claims. And, you know, there's a lot to, to, to go on there because there are certainly people that dislike me for all the things I do and what I've said and would tell other people, oh, you don't want to be around that guy because, well, fill in the blanks. And, you know, someone like my wife who stands by me and supports me and makes it possible for me to do all that I do would probably be very angry and has been, you know, when people have done that uh, to me. And I say, you know, honey, I'm not concerned about that because the people that know me know me and those that don't or are so easily swayed by other people's opinions, maybe they're not, you know, uh, worthy of that inner circle, that trust, that faith, that ability to, you know, to, to enjoy the reason we're all here. And, and, you know, we started this uh, discussion. I brought up the issue of uh, everybody's different spiritual and or religious beliefs and experiences and recognizing that there's a joy in our distinct differences. If we come together uh, on a mission with purpose that brings more love and upliftment and healing, if it doesn't come in the package that we're, we desire, does it mean it's, it's absolutely wrong for everybody else? You know, what is it that gives us that resonant image or frequency that draws us back to the divine? Couldn't it be different for each of us because we're uniquely created as individuals by God? And, and then it becomes, again, a compassionate moment where I thought my role was to convert everybody to be what I am, to do what I do. And, you know, of course, in the healing realm, I certainly have perspectives and opinions about how people, you know, can do things better to get well. But at the same time, recognizing the things that I didn't know. Am I going to condemn people that don't know those things now? Or am I going to be compassionate and loving and, and ready for them when they need help that I can offer them? And even if they reject it, do I then reject them or do I have compassion and love for them because it's their journey, not my journey? I mean, these are the questions I ask now, even all these years later, uh, but I, I take great joy in having a position that's different from when I was the zealot trying to convert everybody to whatever it is, right? Healing, eating, whatever, uh, to, to be the one that says, you know what? I wasn't always there. I need to remember that when I'm working with other or talking or uh, communicating to other people. And that's a hard one because especially the people you love the most, you want them to do the right thing, to be the best, to do the best. And yet, like, you know, you as a child of your parents, I was thinking now as a parent, which you are of wonderful children, what if you encountered or your child was going through something similar? And I don't mean the abuse perspective necessarily, but had a position of like, God is dead. God is dead to me. I'm dead inside. How do you as a parent you can't force them to open up and love God. What is it that you can do in a circumstance like that? Because I'm sure many parents go through that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say to you, Robert, it I'm gonna get choked up. <laughs> Knowing that somebody reached out to you to warn you about me. Um, I remember when you announced that on your show, you know, and to have you not listen to them, to have you still give me a chance um, to still have you know, an open mind about me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, how much I love you for that, um, because it, it has meant the world to me to have your support and to be part of the show. Just 
I love it. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful and I appreciate your, your demeanor and your, your compassion and all of those things that you just talked about. And, you know, it leads me into the, the next point, you know, with your question is, I feel like I'm the prodigal son, you know, um, this last summer I went over to Israel uh, to see my parents, you know, they've lived in Jerusalem for since 1996. And I had the chance to, to take my kids over there and to visit their grandparents. And um, one night, my parents and I, shortly after I got there, you know, two or three days in, we stayed up. It was probably 2 a.m. We'd been talking about all sorts of spiritual things, about, um, you know, our, our history, childhood, all of those things. And I know that my dad, my mom, they've been praying for me for a long time, mm. for decades, and they never gave up. Mm. And I stood up, you know, it's now 2 a.m., like it's time to go to bed. And my dad and I were just looking at each other and he said, tonight was the greatest conversation I've ever had. And I felt like that prodigal son that that was wandering off for, for so long, that, that did all the wrong, that wasted so much, that it was that moment um, where I was finally redeemed and mm. I gave my dad a hug. It was the most special moment. I will never forget it. And man, it's redemption is beautiful. Forgiveness is beautiful. And I'm just trying to, you know, pass on what, you know, the grace that has been shown to me. I'm trying to live that way uh, toward others as well. And, you know, I fail. Sometimes I'm not as kind or as compassionate as I should be, but I'm trying. And, you know, I'm just trying to make this world a better place. Mm. And you can see I regret every day that I uh, actually look at you and go, yeah, no, he's an okay guy. Not really, of course. I love the fact that, you know, we've had this journey for the few years together now, uh, and it will continue, you know, even as as you uh, make extraordinary moves on this planet to do even more things. And I, I was thinking when we when we first met, if I remember, a lot of times we would be talking and you'd be on a, a ladder up on the roof of houses fixing, you know, the gutters and all of these things and yeah and and just what has transpired what have you opened up to to do this extraordinary work you're doing of connecting people as i said connecting diamonds connecting souls that have a story to tell that have empowering and uplifting information that they need to share with the world and you are now a conduit for that in extraordinary ways and still growing in ways that i i i'm just i shake my head going dude that kevin guy look at him go I'm just so excited it's to see not me, man. That's what I'm trying to say. All of this has been God the entire way. Like I, yeah. I couldn't do this. I wouldn't know how to do any of it. Um, yeah. But somehow God has opened every door. Mm -hmm. If it's through Scott Shera, who's whose daughter Grace, you know, who was killed in a hospital last or in 2021, excuse me. Yeah. Um, through his story and connecting with him and helping his story get out there to the masses, to to then opening up my own business at Spirit PR where I knew I could do this for other people. You know, I have uh, Danielle Baker is a vaccine injured lady who's, man, her, she's so grateful. Um, she's such a hero. You know, she's, every time I book her on something, she's so excited that somebody else wants to hear her story. And and these are the stories, these are the people that I'm, I'm trying to to elevate. And and I don't feel like I'm, I'm the, everything behind them, right? I, I feel like, God put me here mm -hmm. 
to elevate them. Um, so it's it's not me doing it. It's yeah. it's their stories. It's we just happen to connect, and sure. I happen to listen to the to the Lord and and take on these clients. And it's just blessed. Like all along the way, I just you know I don't do any advertising because I don't need to. People are finding me that need to find me, and and that's yeah. my belief is that God will arrange all of this. So yeah, we'll touch the heart of those that are ready to have that. You know that energy light them up if you will and uh, be more living examples for that love as you are kevin my prep my 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 brother i uh, love you appreciate you so so very much and uh, again this journey that we're sharing a, a bit here on this planet in this lifetime it's amazing again i just i smile big it really is yeah, yeah. and uh i would just say uh, uh thank you you know for, for all that you're doing and who you are and that you have come into my life and uh, really uplifted us. And, and Super Don, I'm sure, feels similarly. Maybe. I think so. <laughs> we, we have a great time together. Uh, and uh, we've got some events coming up. I hope you all will check it out at robertscottbell.com or sign up for the newsletter uh, at robertscottbell.com. Kevin, my brother, thank you, man. What a, what a great conversation and your willingness to share what you share. Uh, and uh, Thank you. Yeah, if you guys have shed a tear, I hope it's ultimately a tear of joy. But whatever it is, allow those emotions to flow through you. They're part of who we are, um, but they aren't who we are. Uh, it's just a part of who we are in the, on this journey. So thank yeah. you, Kevin. You have to face yourself. That's all I want to face yourself. Ask for forgiveness and life can be beautiful. Yeah. And then you'll know, as I've come to realize and reminding you and me every time I do the show that the power to heal spiritually and every other way is yours.